As much as I was uh, disappointed to not be with you guys last weekend, I was very happy to see that Josh got to deal with the really hard, difficult text, if you're her, last week. So I'm thankful that I'm assuming the next passage after that's going to be a really light, easy one. We'll see what it says. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Nope, I guess I didn't dodge a bullet at all. Josh and I, (laughs) Jesus lined that up perfectly for Josh and me to both have a doozy. No, I'm actually really uh, grateful to get to dig into this text with you guys um, this morning. It's kind of a wild, wild text, especially in our culture and in our moment. Um, And that's one of the things I like about preaching through books of the Bible or sections of the Bible is you don't get to kind of skip the hard things. Well, actually, I guess you technically could, but uh, you don't get to skip it. Jesus just serves it up, and there it is. Do any of you remember this old show called The Jetsons? Some people are like, I'm too young for that. Technically, I'm actually too young for that as well. But there were reruns when I was younger, and I saw it. And The Jetsons is a really fascinating show. Um, And for those of you who don't know, it's a show that came out in the 60s, and it was this futuristic show. You have robots and flying cars and stuff like that. But what's interesting about The Jetsons is... Although the Jetsons depicts what they think will one day be like this future technological age, it's still the 1960s, but with some future technology. It's still the culture of the 1960s and the language of the 1960s, but just with flying cars and stuff like that. And so we've gone through a lot of technological changes since the Jetsons, right? Like the internet, got cell phones, they started out huge, then they got really small, now they're really big again. Uh, We've been through a lot of those changes. But I would suggest that the biggest changes in our world, at least in the Western world, even though our technological changes are huge, I think the biggest changes are our cultural changes, our shifts in who we are internally. We don't have flying cars. I don't have a robot made yet. But uh, I do, but, I, but so much has changed outside of that. In fact, it's interesting if you kind of match it to like a, the Jetsons to a show that was kind of contemporary to that, the Flintstones, they were the exact same show, just with different levels of technology, right? One, they're flying in cars. The other one, they're powering it, but they're bare feet on the ground. But really, they're the same. Culturally, they're the same. The world has changed a lot, and our advances culturally and that type of change, it's hard to keep up. If you're like me sometimes, living in a time of council culture, you're regularly like, Am I, do, have I like updated to the newest operating system of language so that I don't get canceled. Like doing this public speaking thing, there's this like real thought like, um, like I don't consider myself to be a really offensive or uncaring person, but it's like I might not have gotten like the newest update on like what I need to say or what I can't say or whatever. Our culture changes a lot. Language, how we interact, all these things. One of the things that's changed a lot for sure is uh, a lot of our views and what's important to us theologically in the church. I don't know if you know this, but like it wasn't that long ago the churches were like arguing about whether or not like like prohibition used to exist in the U, in in the in America and Canada prohibition where you weren't allowed to drink alcohol in a lot of parts of the world and the church would would have spent a lot of time thinking and talking about that well that's that's not our culture now right it's it would be more 
probably expected or common that a pastor from stage might say, hey, we're going to go out for a pint after the service. Then the pastor would say, hey, I don't know if we should have alcohol or alcohol stores in our in our world. And I'm not taking a stance on that in this moment. I'm just saying that's changed. The last church I worked at when I was getting interviewed, the question that I got more than any other question from people in the church, and I'll, I'll, I'll pause for a second so you can, if you're like me, you want to guess inside your mind, what's the thing he got asked about the most? The thing I got asked about the most was this theological issue of complementarianism versus egalitarianism. Anybody get that correct in their mental guess? No. Anyways, it's very specific. What I thought about like gender differences and roles of leadership and teaching and stuff in the church. So this is in 2019, 2020. That was the question that kept coming up. The guy who led that search team was like, it's so interesting because he would recall the time being on a search team a few decades before, and he's like, this, the question then was, what was your view on divorce? What was your view on divorce? Changes a lot. When I was interviewing at the churches, that never got asked of me. No one, no one asked. That's just like a, it's kind of an old, stale issue that we don't really think about. Even, I think about Josh's topic next week, and while we're trudging into deep waters, I might as well go right into it, but it's like, you know, the church used to talk about like lust and pornography and sex and stuff like that a fair amount more. But now when it comes to like sexuality and stuff, the church now is really hyper-focused on like LGBTQ plus issues and kind of processing that and talking about that so much that we've kind of like moved past some of the other conversations and we kind of eventually just kind of have the hot topic conversations and move past things. So divorce, I mean, it's just part of our world, right? In Canada, 40, 50% of marriages end in divorce. You know, 40 or 50%, like, those are the marks I was, like, aiming for when I was in high school, right? Now, now it's not the mark I'm aiming for in my marriage, but it's a high number. We don't really talk about it a lot. And Jesus drops this really interesting teaching here. And I want to just comment something, I think, some, about kind of our culture compared to the culture of when Jesus was speaking. I love the Bible. If you've been a pilgrim for a bit, if you heard uh, our question response week, you know, really my philosophy of ministry is just built on trying to encourage people to engage with this book because I think it will change your life more than like, I realize I'm an incredibly like probably the best preacher you've ever heard in your life. But even at my finest moments, still nothing in comparison to, do you guys, do you guys, uh, did you guys ever see the old clip where John, Donald Trump is again, not pick, like, okay, I'm like talking about like, I'll just go to, but he's speaking at Liberty uh, university and he, um, must have done a Google search on the word liberty and found it in the Bible. He's like, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Anyways, he makes this comment. He's like, the Bible, the Bible's the best book. It's the whole ball game. And he's like, you know, you've read the art of the deal. That's his book. He's like, that's a, that's a far second to the Bible. And I was just like, oh my goodness. The gall. I love the Bible. It's the whole ball game. Donald Trump was right about that. I'm not quite sure that I think the art of the deal is number two, but uh, anyways. I love scripture. But for me, the question is, what is scripture actually saying to us? And we live in 2024, where the Bible wasn't actually written to us, but I believe it was written for us. So the work we get to do is to say, well, what is this preacher on the mount actually communicating? What's under there? Now, there's a lot, I think, in a text like this that's being communicated. But what I hope to lean into is something that is probably a little bit different than what our cultural moment would probably strive for. We live in a world where, myself included, if someone sends me like a video, they're like, hey, check out this video on YouTube. My dad will often send me videos that are like 
8, 10, 30, 60 minutes long. And I'm just like, Dad, you lost me at two. You know, it's like, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But our culture is so fixated on like answers and info bites rather than deep knowledge and understanding. We just want to know like the thing. So a good difference would be if I don't know anything about cooking and baking, and you guys know that from the potlucks when I bring like Tim Hortons and Little Caesars and stuff like that. But, you know, we want our recipes as like short and point form, or if it's like a YouTube recipe video, it's like short and point form so we can do it as quickly as possible and just get the information and do the task. In the Middle East 2,000 years ago, there would be more interest in understanding than just info and knowledge, maybe understanding the person who created the recipe and having, could you imagine you open a recipe book and it's like, there's like the biography of the person who like first invented. Some of you are like, Oh, that sounds amazing. But like most of us, we're just like, no, I just want to know like how much brown sugar to put in. Right. You know, it's like, and so when we acknowledge that this book is written, these scriptures are compiled more for people who are fixated on understanding. I think that fits in really well with the idea of this series. Rather than us coming to this text and saying how, we should be saying who. Who is being revealed, not the how. I'm not interested in coming here on a Sunday morning and trying to tell you all the answers and modify your behavior. If you're in a tricky situation and you want to talk through some of the logistics of like, you know, how does marriage work and stuff like that, great. I think you should do that in community and I'm happy to have those conversations. But I'm less interested in looking at this text and coming up and doing like a really kind of 2024 Western thing and being like, here are like the three points. Here's when you're allowed to get divorced. Here's when you shouldn't. Here's how you do it, all that. But what I'm more interested in is looking at the character of the person who's talking about divorce and that's Jesus. So let's hop back into the text and see what we can glean about our creator and how we can lean into his character. It has been said, this is, in Jesus, this is Jesus referencing the Old Testament law. This is scripture. He says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. I read that. I'm like, great present, right? It's like, hey, we're getting divorced. Don't worry. I got you this like shadow box, nice like framed certificate of divorce. You can take that with you. I want to spend a little bit of time here kind of digging into a little bit of the context of what that means. But um, I actually want to zoom further back to the beginning of like the whole story. So if you've read through the Bible, if you haven't, it's a great book, 10 out of 10, would recommend. But if you have, Genesis 1 is pretty classic. Um, and there's a story of God creating the world from nothing. He creates into like the dark chaos of nothingness. He starts to speak and things are created. Now, there are many pictures I think that you could conjure up about that. A lot of times people go to Genesis 1 and just want to discuss like the mechanics, again, very 21st century Western. And not that I'm against every part of our culture, but we just want the mechanics. We want to know how. We want the info. We want the short version and all that. But I think if you really read Genesis 1 slowly and think through it, many pictures could be conjured up. And I want to share one story that I have, or one picture that I have about Genesis 1 that I hope is compelling for you. I feel it's very compelling. I think that at the beginning, what happened was God started to set up the most epic, brilliant wedding venue that's ever existed throughout the history of time. In Canada today, it's actually, I haven't looked for a few years, so I'm sure it's higher, but the average wedding day costs about twenty or $30,000. People put a lot of effort, a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of fighting with your mother-in-law, 
a lot of emotion, a lot into this, this, this moment, this event. And this moment in this event is really just, you know, like a marker for what's coming after that, this relationship that's coming after that. Even in the most elaborate senses of how much people might invest into or pour into or try to beautify or get the right decorations or make sure the groomsmen are, I don't know, wearing the suspenders or the hat or the bow tie or the suit or whatever your vibe is or whatever it is or that you've got the sand that you're going to pour or you're going to tie the ropes or, you know, all the things. As much as we put into that, I think in Genesis 1, we read the story of this God who's like, it is nothing compared to this epic wedding that I'm about to set up. He starts to speak and he paints the sky with clouds and the sun and he speaks and he paints the landscape with beautiful mountains and grassy hills and fields and streams and lakes and oceans and it teems with life and beauty. And he sets up this beautiful wedding venue, not just so that it can be this nice venue, but he sets it up to inaugurate what I would consider to be the first wedding of all time. Throughout scripture, the church, us who are in community with God, in relationship with God, are described as his bride, the bride of Christ. You've probably heard that terminology before. Well, if we're his bride, then there's some wedding event somewhere, right? I think Genesis 1 gives us that picture of it, where God creates people in his image, and he says, I do. And he allows them to respond. And that's such a beautiful, compelling start of the story. And what we would love is this great, happily ever after. But we've all seen, unfortunately, like romantic dra- drama movies, like those Hallmark movies and stuff like that. And there's this tension, there's this breaking, and it happens. God creates people and he says, listen, I know you so well. I know you inside and out. I knit you together. I put you together. I've created this beautiful wedding venue and I want you to live in it forever and you can have it. Just trust me and obey. And that becomes very difficult. God is very faithful to his bride, but his bride struggles to be faithful in response. So the bride breaks the commitment, breaks the trust, and runs away. And God does what most of us would do when our bride is unfaithful, when our spouse is unfaithful and runs away, and he goes on the Jerry Springer show and uh, airs his dirty laundry with the whole world. He tweets out nasty things. He unfollows her and blocks her on Instagram. He gets their friends together and, and, and kind of like lobbies to have them take his side so that they can talk trash about his bride together and they can believe him and speak negatively. He makes sure that even though there's no prenuptial agreement, he's getting as much out of it as he can and he's very aggressive and fights and gets what's his, right? No, that's what we do. God, what he does, although his bride is very unfaithful, and there's so many images of this throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible, um, throughout the Old Testament particularly, you may or may not know this, but whenever the nation of Israel, like, not whenever, but many of the times when the nation of Israel goes against God and defies God, it's not just described as disobedience, it's actually described as like prostituting themselves to other gods. It's this act of like like this marital infidelity of turning away from your spouse and spouse and being unfaithful it's often related to this like sexual misconduct even if it's not sexual in nature it's like this picture of this broken marriage and and every page as that's going on this amazing loving husband continues to pursue and pursue and pursue with the door of reconciliation wide open most of us, we're encouraged when there's that breaking to close that door right away. Oh, I need my boundaries. I need my healthy space. 
It's not good. It's toxic. Now, there's some moments where we need to draw some lines. I get that. But God, that door is wide open. One of the, one of the broken things that's going on with his spouse, with his partner in this situation, is that their relationships with him are not only broken, but their relationships with each other are broken. And so he gives people great gifts. He gives them the gift of marriage and family and sex. And he gives them these gifts of life and all these things that come along with it. But we continue to sow our brokenness and our unfaithfulness into like everything. He gives us something great and we're like, it's like if you lend your car to someone and they just like immediately go crash it into something and bring it back with a bunch of dents. It's kind of like, it's kind of the picture. He's like, here's something amazing. It's like, ah, you know. And so he gives us marriage and all of a sudden he sees that people are breaking their marriage covenants. They're being unfaithful to one another and he sees it as this really broken thing. So this idea of a certificate of divorce is not God in the Old Testament saying, hey, yeah, for sure, get divorced. Just make sure, make sure you do the certificate. It's like nice. It's official. It's that. He doesn't care about that. What a certificate of divorce is, is actually, in that context, is actually something that's countercultural and is generous in a situation of brokenness. Now, God never condones divorce. And if you've, I imagine in this room, there are people who've been divorced or maybe will be divorced one day or We've probably all been affected by divorce, whether it's family or friends. And so I don't want to speak insensitively, but God obviously never created marriages to end like that. He models that from the beginning where his, he's always faithful. But in the Old Testament, he says, but if you're going to do it, because I know you're going to do it. I mean, how many of us have had this conversation with our kids, right? It's like, it's like don't do this. But if you do, please at least like be a little bit safe about it. You know, don't do this. He says, if you have to do this, if you're going to end this thing, if you're going to break your vows, give your wife a certificate of divorce. This is weird nowadays for us because we're kind of like, the language is very like, the man does this, the woman does this. Back in the day, if you were a divorced man, you could go on with life. You would own land. You'd be okay. You'd be, you could provide for yourself, all that. If you were a divorced woman, you were in serious trouble. Thousands of years ago in the Middle East, you were in trouble. No one's going to marry you. No one's going to take care of you. You're kind of discarded. You you might actually be like, like they didn't have like homeless shelters back then like we have now. You'd be in serious trouble. This idea of giving a certificate of divorce is actually Jesus saying, or God saying, when you break those vows, how can you be generous in that moment and actually care for the person afterwards? How many of you have like watched people go through a divorce or go through a breakup or even just like a broken relationship, whether it's marriage or not, where they're like, the person's like, I wonder how generous I can be in the middle of this conflict. I wonder what I could do to like set this person up for success after this. I've seen this happen in so many relationships within the church. I've seen this happen in churches themselves where it's just like there's conflict and people just go to war. And they're just fighting. It's like, well, we want this and we want this. It's better for us. And it's very infrequent that people are like, how do I, how do I set this person up for a better future? How do I make it more, like, how do I make it unfair for myself? I deal this, with this a lot with my six-year-old daughter. Often she's like, my, my three-year-old will get something. She's like, no fair, no fair, which is like totally false. Because she, as the firstborn child, it's actually the opposite. That It's really unfair for our younger daughter. If you've got kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. She's gotten way more. Anyways, but she'll always be like, no fair. And I continually tell her, I'm like, Avra, life isn't about fair. 
It's okay for life to be unfair. And as she grows up, and hopefully as a follower of Jesus, she'll learn that the call of following Jesus is to continually try to walk into the unfair, to allow things to be unfair, because the more generous you are, the more things are weighted to those around you rather than toward yourself. And even in the midst of a broken relationship, Jesus would say, hey, how do you be generous? How do you be kind? How do you not be a backbiter? How do you, I I heard this incredible story uh, at the last church I worked at of this guy who had, he had married this girl, they weren't following Jesus. And then she started following Jesus and her life changed radically. And over time, their relationship decayed and they ended up getting divorced. And do you know what she did? She said, Hey, you know what? This is ending. I just want you to take the house. I just want you to take all the things. He got like 80% plus whatever. Just take it. Just bless you. And that was actually one of the life-changing, pivotal moments in his life of experiencing who Jesus is. And now this guy's following Jesus. They're sadly not together still. But how, how weird of a story is that? How many of us, if our friend was in that situation, be like, no, it's crazy. Like, at least take 50%, right? Like, just, that's fair, right? Following Jesus isn't about fair. Anyone who divorces his wife must try to take care of her even if she's messed up the relationship, even if it's all her fault. In 2024, anyone who divorces their husband should say, how do, I, how do I prop them up? How do I set it up so that their path after this is as, is as good as it can be? Because that's what God does all through the Old Testament. His wife is unfaithful, his partner is unfaithful, and he continues to say, how do I continue to pave a road until he eventually comes down and gives his life? But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife. So Jesus, again, he's like always taking this Old Testament law and then kind of raising the bar. Last week, Josh's thing is like, yeah, like don't, don't commit adultery. We got that. Like we, most of us, well, the stats are getting worse, but most of us acknowledge that's not a good idea. And Jesus is like, don't even give a second look at that girl that walked down you on the street. You know, it's like, oh, shoot, Jesus, like this is really high. But here's what Jesus says. He says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who carries, or who marries a divorced woman, not carries, anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is really strong language. And the Bible actually often uses strong language like this throughout in Malachi, the prophet equates divorcing your wife as like an act of like violence and like hatred. It's like this very painful and hurtful thing to do to someone. And I would suggest that what we're hearing here is not just God's instructions bit by bit on here's how you do a marriage. I think we're getting some of that, but him really exposing his heart and how relationships work, whether it's marriage, family, friendships, anything like that. This perfectly committed God who no matter what the other person does, even if they're nailing him to a cross, says forgive them, who extends generosity and commitment in all things. And here's, here's what I would say from this passage. I would say as we look at the God of great commitment like this, the thing I carry with myself is this little phrase. I just say commit like God is committed to you. Commit like God is committed to you. My kids frustrate me. Friends turn their backs on me. You know, my wife is perfect and has never done anything wrong, just for the record. But when I heard her, commit like God is committed to you. What would that look like in our lives? What would that look like in my life if I never chose impatience, if I never chose aggression, if I never chose, oh, that's not fair. I want what's mine. Paul says in one of his letters, it would be better to be wronged, you know, than to fight with one another. Just allow people to wrong you. Just allow it to happen. Now, 
I want to be careful because we're talking about divorce. This doesn't mean like, you know, obviously there are lines if it's like abuse and stuff like that. We don't allow people to wrong us like that. But we don't fight to get ahead. We don't talk trash. We don't backbite. We commit like God is committed to us. Again, I think it's the tempting thing in Western culture is to get into this text and teach and be like, okay, well, this along with like 1 Corinthians and what Jesus says in Matthew 19 about divorce and some Old Testament teaching, this is when you're allowed to get divorced, this is when you're not allowed to get divorced, this is how you should do it, stuff like that. And, and I'm just not really that interested in like, this morning, I just, I, I don't, I, I'm not that interested in mo- behavior modification, but I also don't get the sense that this morning, what we need is me to come give you like the 10 step points of like how or not, like the flow chart of like, you know, here's, you know, especially not while you're sitting beside your partner and you're like taking, you're like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. You did that. The other, no. Um, that's, that's less what I'm interested in and more interested in us leaning into the preacher of the mount and recognizing if we are his bride, that there have been many moments where we've stepped out of line, where we've betrayed, where we've acted unfaithfully. And he always just leaves that door for reconciliation open. Remember that story, that parable that Jesus tells the parable of the lost son? One of the things I love about the parable, the parable of the lost son is crazy. It's like the son who goes up to his dad and basically says, hey, dad, could you just die? No, well, then can we act like you're dead so I can just have my inheritance now? And dad says, yes, it's crazy. And he goes out, he wastes it all. He wastes on horrible stuff. And one of the things I love about the story is that when he comes back, it's not just like his dad's like, okay, I'll forgive you or you can work it back or like, but there's this point where Jesus says, and his dad saw him from a long ways off. And he's got this picture of this dad, like, walking around on the porch, like, with the binoculars, probably not 2,000 years ago, but the binoculars every day, like, when's my son coming back? The door for reconciliation is wide open. I know I've been very guilty in my life many times closing that door of reconciliation, allowing the anger, the hurt, the bitterness, the frustration, the that's not right, that's not fair, I want what's mine to be very closed. But if we commit like God has committed to us, I think that we're a little bit more inclined to leave that door open. When we recognize that God's people have been unfaithful to him, including us for thousands and thousands of years, and he leaves that door open, what would it look like for us in our marriages, in our singleness, in our friendships, in our family relationships to say, you know what, like, maybe I just got to get over it a little bit. Maybe commitment needs to be the greater good rather than fairness and equity coming toward me. Jesus just said a few weeks ago, well, he didn't say it a few weeks ago, but for us a few weeks ago, blessed are you when you're persecuted, when you're hurt, people insult you. Blessed are you when you get beat up for me. Rejoice, be glad. I did know um, this older couple, they've gone on now, so I feel okay sharing the story, and I'm not going to say their names, where... Jesus literally says here, if, if, if your partner is cheating on you, is committing adultery, you're allowed to leave them. He says you can do that. But he doesn't say you should do that. But he says you can. I knew this older couple, they've passed on now, where the wife, for quite a long stint in the middle of her marriage, was doing this. She was running around, multiple dudes, cheating on her husband. How, like, humiliating would that be? right? How demoralizing, how emasculating, how hurtful, how much trust would be broken in that. And knowing someone who, I I know someone who's the daughter of these kids. And she said, she would talk to her dad and be like, dad, like, just leave. Like, what are you doing? And the dad said, would say, 
But that's my wife. That's my wife. Again, I'm not going to the other end and prescribing, you know, stick around with anything or whatever. So that's my wife. I married her. I committed to her. I don't have another wife lined up. There's not like someone else I'm looking for. That's my wife. He stuck it out. And beautifully, over time, things reconciled and that ended and that chilled out. I mean, I think if you get old enough, probably some of that naturally chills out anyways. But like, they had a very great end to their marriage together, which would have never happened if he was just looking for that way out. If he was just like, you know what? They this. They, they did this or whatever. There are probably anybody who's married for decades will come across a reason at some point that probably is fair and reasonable to leave their spouse. I'm sure there will be many points in mine and Talcy's marriage where she would say, you know what? Ryan's like this. He's frustrating. He's whatever, you know, like maybe one day my hair will all go gray and she'll be like, you know, he just doesn't look like he used to or whatever. His jokes aren't as good as they used to. Whatever it is. I'm not making fun of gray hair, by the way, for the record. I just realized how offensive that sounded. But <laughs> there are probably be reasons why she could leave me. And I hope that she'll carry this idea of committing like God is committed to her. He's a very deeply faithful, loving spouse. Maybe you redhead in the text and you're like, oh, okay, great. I've got some questions about like divorce and remarriage. And I'm really disappointed because I didn't get into the how, but more into the who. Happy to chat about that. So I'll close with the band's going to come up. Um, we're going to enter into a time of communion. And this is my reflection that I've been thinking about um, with regard to this text. Many of us, when we, if you get married or if you have been married, there'll be a moment where you like say your vows. Um, Talisi and I wrote our own, to be honest, I don't remember what they say at all. I should probably dig them up and read them. But most people, when they do their vows, there's like this classic line. Till death do us part, right? Probably many married people have said, till death do us part, till death do us part. That's actually just wildly untrue in like Canada in 2024. It's not true at all. It's like until you're too frustrating or until the sex isn't good enough or until I meet someone else or until we get into financial troubles or whatever. Till death do us part. Till death do us part is actually a really incredible commitment. That's an incredible vow. What I love about Jesus is he never said till death do us part, but he actually was like, even through my death, I won't part from you. He's like, not just till death. He's like, I'm actually going to like go and die purposely for you. So through my death, still I won't part from you. And when I think about how I've given up on people or I've given up on relationships or I've been frustrated with people or whatever, so much that it doesn't even come close to tell death to his part and where Jesus just goes, he just runs right through that. It's an incredible picture of God's faithfulness and commitment. And so I want us to, um, I'd love to, these are so noisy, I'd love to invite you to maybe lean into that picture. To imagine you're sitting with Jesus, this like kind of night before this significant moment in this, this reconciliation pursuit of this husband who's like looking at his bride and just being like, that's my wife and I love her. This moment you're sitting there. And he doesn't say till death do us part, but he says, actually, like through my death, burial, and resurrection, I'm going to offer reconciliation and restoration in our relationship. By the breaking of my body, I'm going to offer forgiveness for every time that you've been unfaithful in our relationship. I'm going to wipe it away like as though it's never happened. But as he breaks that, it's not just a gift, but it's a 
it's something that he gives us to like ingest and hopefully for output so that in our relationships, we would look at people and say, you know what, even through the breaking of trust, even through the breaking of everything, the breaking of Jesus's body is greater than any brokenness we could ever experience in relationship. I don't know if perhaps this morning your relationships are all intact. Maybe there's a challenge in your marriage, maybe in your family and your friendships or whatever. You can't fix it all. In fact, we see that in the Bible. God leaves the door wide open and many do not enter through it. But we can be those people who are like the the prodigal son's father out on the porch looking and saying, where's my son? Is the door for reconciliation wide open? 